Section 6 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, a Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. In Opposition, 1878-1887, Part 2. The Liberal leaders at Ottawa were inclined to agree that Letellier had been too sensitive about his dignity as governor, and Sir John Macdonald on his part would have preferred to let the matter rest since the elections in the province had upheld Jolie, had not his Quebec supporters demanded their pound of flesh. But the constitutional issue was clear, and on this the Liberals rested their case. It was for the people of Quebec they contended to decide whether or not the lieutenant-governor had violated their liberties. If the lieutenant-governor could find ministers with a legislative majority behind them to uphold his action, there was nothing more to be said. The doctrine of ministerial responsibility covered all his acts, and this support he had found, for the Jolie government, on appealing to the people, had turned a minority of twenty into a majority of one. "'The people of the province of Quebec,' declared Mr. Laurier in the Commons, who alone are interested in this question, have decided that in their opinion, whether that be right or wrong, the act of Mr. Letellier was just and constitutional. You say no. What are you here for if you say no? If your policy has been supported by the people of Quebec, you would not now be seeking the vengeance at the hands of this House. But logic was in vain. The vote of censure carried, and Macdonald recommended to the Governor-General, the Marquis of Lorne, that Letellier should be dismissed. Here again a nice question of responsibility arose. First the question had been whether the lieutenant-governor was to be guided by provincial ministers or by the federal government which appointed him. Now the problem was whether the governor-general should be guided by his advisers in Canada or by the British government which had appointed him. With the assent of the Canadian cabinet, the question was referred to the colonial office. Mackenzie's protest against this colonial-minded appeal was in vain, but the upshot proved satisfactory to him. The colonial secretary replied that the lieutenant-governor was undoubtedly responsible to the governor-general for any act, and that equally undoubtedly the governor-general must act upon the advice, in this as in other matters, of his responsible ministers. The governor-general suggested reconsideration, but the Macdonald cabinet was obdurate, and Letellier was dismissed. Fortunately, the precedent thus set has not been followed. The principle is now established that a lieutenant-governor may be dismissed only when he cannot find provincial ministers willing and able to support him. The later constitutional issues were chiefly disputes between the Dominion and the province of Ontario. They were not merely differences of opinion on abstract constitutional points. They were in large part struggles for power and patronage between two very shrewd practical politicians, Sir John Macdonald and his one-time law student at Kingston, Oliver Mowat, for many years Premier of Ontario first came a struggle as to the western boundary of Ontario, the dividing line between the old province of Canada and the territories purchased from the Hudson's Bay Company had never been determined. After ten years of negotiations, a commission consisting of one representative of the Dominion and one of Ontario, together with the British ambassador at Washington, gave a unanimous award in 1878, an award which the Dominion refused to carry into effect. Other provinces were involved. The Dominion had presented Manitoba with much of the territory in dispute, and the conflict as to jurisdiction between that province and Ontario nearly led to bloodshed. While Quebec was stirred up to protest against the enlargement of Ontario, which would make Ontario, it was said, the preponderant power in the Dominion, Mr. Laurier inveighed against what he termed the dishonorable course of the Dominion government. When negotiating with the Hudson's Bay Company for its lands, it had contended that the old province of Canada extended far west and north, but now it took precisely the opposite stand. 
As for Quebec's interest, he continued, I do not fear the appeal that will be made against me in my own province. This award is binding on both parties and should be carried out in good faith. The consideration that the great province of Ontario may be made greater, I altogether lay aside as unfair, unfriendly, and unjust. The government, however, persisted in rejecting the award, and forced an appeal to the Privy Council only to have Ontario's claim fully substantiated, and the total area of the province confirmed as more than double what Sir John Macdonald would have allowed it. The next issue put to the test the power of the Dominion to veto provincial laws. It was, in form, merely a dispute between two lumbermen, McLaren and Caldwell, as to whether the one higher up on the stream could use, upon paying tolls, timber slides built by the other lower down. But as Edward Blake declared in 1886, this was, of all the controversies between the Dominion and the provinces, by far the most important from the constitutional point of view, for it involved the principle which must regulate the use by the Dominion government of the power of disallowing provincial legislation. When in 1881 a court of justice in Ontario held that the lumberman on the lower reaches could prevent the one higher up from floating down his logs, Mowat had an act passed providing that all persons possessed, and were thereby declared always to have possessed, the right denied by this judgment. This measure was at once disallowed by the Dominion government. Then the Privy Council upheld the contention of the Ontario government as to what the law had been even before the act was passed, and when in 1884 the provincial legislature again passed the same act, the Dominion conceded the point. Thereafter, the veto power has been used only when Dominion or Imperial interests were concerned, or when a statute was claimed to be beyond the power of the province to pass. The wisdom or justice of measures affecting only the local interests of the citizens of a province has been left to the judgment of its own people to determine. The regulation of the liquor traffic provided the next battleground. In 1876, Ontario had passed the Crooks Act, which took the power of granting licenses from the municipalities and gave it to provincial commissioners. Two years later, the Dominion Parliament passed the Scott Act, giving counties power to prohibit the sale of liquor within their limits. The constitutionality of this act was upheld in 1882 in the Russell case, and Sir John Macdonald concluded that if the Dominion had power to pass the Scott Act, the province had not the power to pass the Crooks Act. If I carry the country, he declared at a public meeting in 1882, as I will do, I will tell Mr. Mowat, that little tyrant who has attempted to control public opinion by getting hold of every office from that of a division court bailiff to a tavern keeper, that I will get a bill passed at Ottawa returning to the municipalities the power taken from them by the License Act. At the next session, the McCarthy Act was passed, providing not for municipal control, but for control by federal commissioners. Here again, the highest courts held in 1883 and 1884 that the Ontario measure was within the power of the province, but that the McCarthy Act was beyond that of the Dominion. Once more, the little tyrant had scored. The Dominion Franchise Act of 1885 was the last important measure which need be noted in this connection. By the British North America Act, the Dominion was to adopt the provincial franchise lists for its elections until Parliament should order otherwise. Sir John Macdonald decided, after eighteen years' use of the provincial lists and six half-hearted attempts to change the situation, that the Dominion should set up its own standard, in order both to secure uniformity and to preserve the property qualifications which Ontario and the other provinces were throwing overboard. The opposition contended that this was an attack upon provincial rights. The argument was weak. There could be no doubt of the constitutional power of the Dominion in this matter. Better founded were the attacks of the opposition upon specific clauses of the measure, such as the proposal to enfranchise Indians living upon government reserves and under government control, and the proposal to put the revision of the lists in the hands of partisan revising barristers rather than of judges. 
the conservatives proposed but did not press the point to give single women the franchise and the liberals opposed it after months of obstruction the proposal to enfranchise the western indians was dropped an appeal to judges was provided for the revision of the lists and the income and property standards were reduced inconsistently in some provinces a variation from the general standards was permitted the franchise act of eighteen eighty five remained in force until after the coming of the liberals to power in eighteen ninety six when it was repealed without regret on either side suddenly the scene shifted and instead of the dry and bloodless court battles of constitutional lawyers the fire and passion of armed rebellion and bitter racial feud held the canadian stage the rebellion itself was an affair of but a few brief weeks but the fires lighted on the saskatchewan swept through the whole dominion and for years the smoke of duck lake and batoche disturbed the public life of canada long years before the great west was more than a name to any but a handful in older canada hardy french voyagers and scottish adventurers had pushed their canoes or driven their red river carts to the foot of the rockies and beyond they had mated with indian women and when in eighteen seventy the dominion came into possession of the great hunting preserve of the hudson's bay company many of their half-breed children dwelt on the plains the coming of the railway the flocking in of settlers and the rapid dwindling of the vast herds of buffalo which had provided the chief support of the half-breeds made their nomadic life no longer possible the economic difficulties of making the needed readjustment of settling down to quiet farm activities were heightened by the political difficulties due to the setting up of the new dominion authority then it was on the banks of the red river that these half-breeds known as the metis had risen under the firebrand riel in armed revolt against the incoming regime now in eighteen eighty five it was on the north and south saskatchewan there numerous groups of the metis had made their settlements and when the canadian authorities came in to survey the land to build railways and to organize government these people sought to have their rights and privileges accorded them in manitoba after the insurrection of eighteen seventy the dual claims of the old half-breed settlers had been recognized as part indian they had been given scrip for one hundred and sixty acres each to extinguish the indian title to the land and as part white men they were each allowed to homestead one hundred and sixty acres like any other settler the metis in the northwest territories now asked for the same privileges they wanted also to have their holdings left as they were long narrow strips of land facing the river front like the settlements on the st lawrence with the houses sociably near in one long village street rather than to have their land cut up into rectangular isolated farms under the survey system which the canadian government had borrowed from the united states the requests were reasonable perhaps a narrow logic could have shown inconsistency in the demand to be considered both white and indian at once but the manitoba act had set a precedent only a few thousand acres were at stake in a boundless land where the government stood ready to set aside a hundred million acres for a railway the expediency of winning the good will of the half-breeds was apparent to canadians on the spot especially now that the indians over whom the metis had great influence were also becoming restless because of the disappearance of the buffalo and the swarming in of settlers yet the situation was never adequately faced the Mackenzie government in 1877, on the petition of 150 Scottish half-breeds at Prince Albert, agreed, where settlement had been effected on the narrow frontage system, to conform the surveys in harmony with this plan, and the Scottish holdings were so confirmed. Two years later the Macdonald government passed an act authorizing the giving of scrip to the half-breeds of the Northwest on the same terms as it had been given to those in Manitoba. So far so good. Then came year upon year of neglect, of clerkly procrastination, and of half-concessions. The French half-breeds passed resolution after resolution, sent to Ottawa petition after petition, and delegation after delegation, but in vain. The government forgot the act which it had itself passed in 1879. Nor were the half-breeds themselves the only petitioners. 
Time and again, Father André and other missionaries urged their claims. Some of the government's own land agents on the spot urged them. Charles Mayer of Prince Albert, one of the first of Ontario's settlers in the West, appeared at Ottawa four times before the outbreak to try to waken the government to the seriousness of the situation. The Northwest Council sent strong memorials backing the requests of the Métis, and still, though some of the grievances were redressed, in piecemeal fashion, no attempt was made to grapple adequately with the difficult questions presented by the meeting of two stages of civilization, to understand the disputes, the real wrongs, the baseless fears. When in 1883 Blake in the House of Commons called for papers, none were brought down for two years. When in 1884 Cameron called for a committee of investigation, the reply was that there was nothing to investigate. What was the cause of this neglect? At bottom the government's ignorance of the West. There was not in the cabinet a man who knew its conditions and needs. The Métis were two thousand miles away, and they had no votes, for the Northwest Territories were not then represented at Ottawa. For five years Sir John Macdonald himself had acted as Minister of the Interior. In taking over the cares of a busy department, added to the office of Prime Minister, he made the mistake that Mackenzie had made. But while Mackenzie put in ten to fourteen hours a day at departmental routine at the expense of his duties as leader, Macdonald did his work as leader at the expense of his department. Old Tomorrow solved many a problem wisely by leaving it to time to solve, but some problems proved the more serious for every year's delay. Late in 1883, Sir John gave up the portfolio, but his successor, Sir David Macpherson, effected little change. Late in 1885, Thomas White, an energetic and sympathetic administrator, became minister, but the mischief was then already done. In its defense, the government urged that no half-breed had actually been dispossessed of his riverfront claim, and that many who were demanding scrip had already received land in Manitoba. It contended further that the agitation of the half-breeds was fanned by white settlers in Prince Albert, eager to speculate in scrip, and hinted darkly at mysterious forces and personages in the background, in Canada, and elsewhere. No attempt was made, however, to prove the truth of these latter charges or to bring the guilty to justice. Doubtless the grievances were not so great as to justify rebellion, the less excuse, then, for not curing what was curable. Doubtless also this was not the first time nor the last that a government lacked energy or vision, and had it not been for the other factor in the situation, Louis Riel, no heavy penalty might have followed. But unfortunately, luck or nemesis, the other factor was very much to the fore. Wearied of an ending delay, the Métis looked again to Riel, then living in exile in Montana. He was the one half-breed with any measure of book education and knowledge of the vague world beyond the lakes. Early in the summer of 1884, James Isbester, Gabriel Dumont, Moise Ouellette, and Michael Dumas trudged several hundred miles to Montana and laid their case before him. He needed little urging. The call appealed strongly to his erratic ambition. His term of banishment had expired, and he hastened to the Saskatchewan to organize the Métis. Still, the government did not stir, though it knew the reckless daring of Riel and the influence he wielded. Riel at once set to work to fan the discontent into flame. Though the English-speaking half-breeds drew back, he soon gained remarkable ascendancy over his French-speaking compatriots. He preached a new religion, with himself as prophet, threatening to dethrone the Pope, and denounced the local priests who resisted his campaign. He held meeting after meeting, drew up an extravagant bill of rights, and endeavored to enlist the support of the Indian tribes. Still, all the government did was to send, in January of 1885, a commission to take the census of the half-breeds preparatory to settling their claims. Yet, speaking in the House of Commons on March 26, 1885, Sir John Macdonald made it clear that the half-breeds could not get both Indian scrip and white man's homestead. 
On the very day that this refusal was reiterated, the first shot had been fired at Duck Lake, where a superior force of insurgents under Riel and Dumont routed a party of mounted police and volunteers, killing twelve, and seized the supplies in the government post. Open rebellion had come for a second time. Now, at last, the government acted with energy. On the 6th of April, ten days after Duck Lake, instructions were telegraphed from Ottawa to give the half-breeds the script they had sought, and to allow occupants to acquire title by possession. At the same time, troops were hastily mobilized and speeded west over the broken stretches of the Canadian Pacific Railway. The young volunteers faced danger and hardship like veterans. In spite of the skillful tactics of Riel's lieutenant, Gabriel Dumont, a born general, the volunteers soon crushed the half-breeds and prevented the much more serious danger of an Indian uprising from going far. End of In Opposition, 1878-1887, to 1887, Part 2